not going to hide, not going to stop, and going to totally blow you away, surprise you, astound you, flabbergast you, make you marvel. You are not ready for what Jesus is doing. And Mark is very clear about this because now we've seen him not only heal a man who couldn't talk, give him words and a tongue that spoke. How do you learn to speak so fast? It just happened with the miracle. He has healed a man with a withered hand, stretched it out, and it's well again. He has unplugged the ears of the deaf. He has now opened the eyes of the blind, and today he's going to open the eyes of the blind again. And it's like, why? He just did it. What's the point, Mark? What's this story here for? We know Jesus does miracles. We know he's not going to hide, not going to stop, going to blow us away. We know that he can heal the blind, heal the deaf, heal the mute. So why one more story about Timaeus? And then we get his name. We get his name. I would suggest to you it's because Mark knew Timaeus at church. They'd met. And they'd had a relationship, not a close one necessarily, but they knew who each other were, and Timaeus had told him this story, so Timaeus gets recognized. That's one reason, but there's another reason in that, and it has to do with the end of that story, the end of Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, which starts on page 847 of your pew Bible. If you found it in your own Bible, that's awesome too. I'd like to take notes there. Um, but I want you to zoom up the page just a little bit to Mark 10, verse 44 and 45. This is the last verses we heard on Wednesday. But it's not the first time we've heard this kind of talk. Jesus has been talking this way repeatedly for about three chapters. And he gives different versions of it, but let's, let's look at it here as it leads into our text. Verse 44 says, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, chapter 8, 34, and 37, chapter 9, 35, chapter 10, 31, they're all dealing with this same idea that the last is first, and the first is last in the kingdom of God. Or maybe another way to think about it is in the kingdom of God, good is better than great. If you want to be great, you're not going to be that good. You'll be, you can be okay. You won't be bad necessarily. You can be like mostly great. But if you're the greatest there ever was, then, then maybe in fact you're evil. That, that's how it works in the kingdom of God. If you think you're the greatest among us, you, you got something missing in the head about the Holy Spirit. Because in the kingdom of God, we are all brothers and sisters, beggars alike. Beggars who got into the house under the premise that we'll get to be slaves. And once we got inside, God said, you're my son. That's who we are in Christ now. That's good. And it's way better than being great on this planet. I can tell you that for sure. So the last will be first. Again, he's, he said this again and again. He said a couple other phrases that I think explain it in terms that American Christianity can resonate with. And this is a good thing. We want to speak the way that American Christianity used to speak because they used to speak the Bible. And so in the Bible, uh, Christians used to quote things like, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Or we still do quote this. I heard it in a song recently. 
What does it profit me to gain the whole world and forfeit, sacrifice, exchange my soul in order to get it? The last will be first, the first will be last. You were blind. You thought that it was about how great you could be, but now you see that the great one, Jesus, has descended to you, and as he just said, leading into our text, not for you to do something for him. He's not here so you can be his servant. You're already his servant. He made you his servant. Even when you rebel and run away from him, the unbeliever, they're still his servants. They just don't get the benefit of knowing it. And the blessing of having God pour goodness into their lives, they think they got to do it all. So, taking up the cross and following Jesus means saying that Jesus came not in order to ask you to do something for him, but to go to his cross for you. And his cross, look at that, it's yours. Take up your cross, carry it to Jesus, lay it down there, he picks it up and dies on it for you. That's what he came to do. To be a ransom for many, right? Payment and exchange again. And then that gets us to the story of Bartimaeus, chapter 10, verse 46. They're in Jericho. Uh, We could talk about that, but I want to get to the other text later. You heard this read already. So I'm just going to jump down to the part that is going to lead into what we do next. This is the end. I mean, Jesus heals the blind man. Marvel at this. Go home and read it. Marvel at this. Uh, But at the end of it, Verse 52, Jesus says, go your way. Okay, that's fine. Your faith has healed you. Or your faith has made you well. Or if you look at the Greek, your faith has saved you. So what does that mean? That faith saves. And that saves means heals. Because I know that one of the things I don't like about the verses we're going to look at is there's a lot of people up there in the world preaching them as a money laundering scheme. What we're going to look at is if you ask for something from God, God says you're going to get it if you have faith. You have a lot of Christians out there saying, well, if you just had faith, then you'd get what you want. And you know how you show you have faith? You give money to my church. You give money to me. That's how they work it. And so then it becomes a Ponzi scheme using these words to sell people miracles. And frankly, I just can't stand that. And most Lutherans can't either. And so we don't talk about these verses. That's not the right action, though. It's the wrong response. So here we go. Going forward. The triumphal entry is first. So before we get to the, these hard words, we've got easy words in a sense. And you know this story, so we're not going to walk verse by verse through this one again. Uh, but we're going to talk about what Jesus is riding on. Uh, I'll tell the story first, right? They're about to enter into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die this week. Now, we got two weeks right now for us until Easter. Normally, this text would be next Sunday, Palm Sunday, but it's here for the sake of our journey through Mark. But Jesus, in his mind, he's riding in to die. You know the song, right on, right on in majesty, right on to die. Yeah. Uh, so he's riding in to die, but he doesn't have anything to ride on yet. Why would he ride in? Well, it's a mark of kingdom. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But he sends his disciples to get himself a a what? On the count of three, what did Jesus ride in? I want you to say it out loud. I want to hear hear what you say. On a count of three, what did Jesus ride on? One, two, three. How many words did you just hear? 
This is what we're going to spend time on, okay? I want to get to that. But he sends them to get uh, this donkey. It's fine. Uh, the donkey is brought to him. They put the cloaks on the donkey. He sits on the donkey. They walk in. A crowd shows up. They're putting cloaks and branches and brushes on the road and singing songs. And the Pharisees don't like it. You know this part, right? Um, but what I want to take you to is what you don't know, which is what that animal is. Uh, the, the donkey. It, it is a donkey, kind of. What's a donkey? Good question. Why does he go and choose this animal? To do that, we got to go to Zephani or Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the last books in the Old Testament. It's not very far away from Mark. Uh, and on page 797, you'll find verse 9, which is a prophecy about the coming of the final king of the entire world. And that he's going to come to Zion, Jerusalem, God's city, God's temple. And this is what it's going to be like. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right. Well, um, I don't know how you know your bestiaries, but... You got three different types of animal or versions of animal mentioned just in that last part of the verse. Did you catch that? You have a, a donkey, you have a colt, and you have the foal of a donkey. So three really different things. And then there's a fourth one there, but it's not mentioned. It's just what they do. But we can talk about all of these things as a mount, as something you ride. And that's important because that's the word that Mark uses exclusively in his gospel. A word that means any type of four-legged, horse-like animal that you ride. Donkey, mule, colt, what else could it be? Um, llama? Probably not. Maybe. I don't know. Okay, but, but you mount it. That's the point. It's like a cheap car. In fact, it's not any type of mount. It's not a, it's not a charger, usually. This word means the kind of four-legged riding animal anybody can afford. That's, the, that's what this is, except there's something special that's going to come out of this in what Zechariah says. Mark says, common vehicle, right? A little Prius or something, right? Uh, that's what Mark says Jesus is on. When you go back and Zechariah says, he's on this foal of a donkey that's also a colt that's, uh, well, is it a donkey? Okay, so that word, the foal of a donkey, is super lonely. It's super unique in the Old Testament. It only shows up, really, uh, two other places. And they're both messianic. That is, they're about the Messiah. And it's not Solomon. Even though there is a text about Solomon riding in on a mountain. But, but not necessarily on this foal of a donkey. So what is this foal of a donkey? What does that mean? You have to learn what the ancient world thought about these animals. And so why are donkeys there? What are they that distinguishes them from, from horses? And, and I'm not talking about like uh, the narrow stuff of kingdom phylum genus in this. What I'm talking about like what's a donkey compared to a horse? And the easy, the answer is um, cheaper 
and more sturdy over time. You kind of sacrifice the strength for endurance, basically. And you do that through breeding. It's not accidental. I, I'm not sure God said on the first day or the seventh day, no, it was the fifth day, excuse me, you know, donkey, mule, horse. He said, you know, horse kind. Okay? And over time, man, through our breeding techniques, have put together horses of different traits and gotten them to do all sorts of things. We've done it with dogs like you wouldn't believe. You can make a big dog a small dog. But it comes with drawbacks. Doesn't always work as well. That small dog might have some health issues, which you do find out uh, eventually with some of the, the, the breeding of donkeys and or this colt, the foal of a donkey. At a certain point, they become unable to reproduce. They can't even go forward anymore. And it's all buried in these three words here that are listed, um, not as well translated as they could be. So let me try to explain then what, what these three words are. The first word, humble and mounted on a donkey, in Zechariah chapter 9, is the word donkey. Kamor, uh, donkey. Uh, the second word, the colt, uh, that is the word that we're after. right? That's the word that is used only a couple of times. But that colt is already defined as something else, uh, the foal of a donkey. So that foal of a donkey, uh, that is uh, a colt, this is a Purebred donkey is what it means. Okay? So you have a donkey, the son of a purebred donkey. And then what is that purebred donkey? Well, the, the word for it we don't use anymore. YouTube, can I say this? We used to call this kind of animal a jackass. Like, this is definitely and narrowly, I'm not cussing it. That's the only way to describe the specialty in the ancient world's view of the jackass which we use to mean like rude or loud-mouthed or stubborn. Well, yes, but with endurance like you wouldn't believe, not too expensive really, anyone could ride one or buy one and have one. And again, it's purebred and will not reproduce. Does that ring a bell? Like Jesus, who never married the normal way? Purebred, dying alone, right? In order for what? Uh, to, to proclaim his value to the world. So he sits on this, this uh, well, this again, um, purebred donkey. Uh, the other thing to take from this, then, is that there's something we kind of just assume in the story that it never talks about. And I don't know about, you know, foals of donkeys so well. I, I do know about horses a little more, but I'm pretty confident that all of these animals, they don't just let you get on. Like, they, you have to do something to these animals. If you live in the country, you know you're a cowboy, right? And it's kind of an interesting word that we use to talk about what you got to do to a horse to be able to ride the horse. Anybody know? Got to break the horse. Ouch. Got to break the horse. Well, okay, so guess what? The colt, the foal of a donkey, still by his mother in the pen, has never had happen. It's never been broken. Let that mean everything it can possibly mean to you. Jesus is going to sit on a purebred that's never been broken, riding to where he will become broken. So there's a symbol there, but just this too. How did he get on? He didn't break it. That's who Jesus is. What a beautiful, beautiful man. I, I walk up to animals, I'm kind of afraid of them, usually. And then they can pick up on my fear. 
He just walks up and sits down on this symbol of himself to enter as the son of David into the kingdom to do what's supposed to be done. And where does he go? Well, he goes to the temple. But first, uh, that night, and this is interesting, Mark tells the story differently. We're not going to tie on this thread too much. Um, they, go, they go back home after the triumphal entry. He goes out to rest at these two places, Bethphage and um, and the other one that's mentioned there. And on the way home, let's look at, uh, on the way back, verse 12 of chapter 11. On the way back, on the next day, it's going to be Monday, to the temple. It says, they came, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. A little humanity of Jesus there for you. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All right, so uh, story sandwich time, right? We got more fig tree coming up, so I'm going to leave most of the fig tree talk for after the cleansing of the temple, because it's about what it means. The temple is the fig tree. Israel, the nations, the fig tree. I mean, there's a real fig tree too, but it stands as a symbol for all of us about what Jesus is experiencing right at this moment. He's coming to this temple that is going to appear to be in flourishing, thriving greatness. And he's going to say there's not a single piece of fruit. It's just leaves. It's just show. It's just shine. And so, yeah, since you're not going to bear fruit, what good are you? Jesus does indeed leave Jerusalem right, after the ascension. He's done with it. He curses it. He breaks Jerusalem. So this curse happens here, and it's definitely a symbol of what's going on around them. The only other piece that's kind of interesting is there's a debate amongst scholars as to whether or not it was even the season for figs. So there's like this, but that wasn't fair Jesus moment. Because it's definitely not the season primarily for figs, which is later in the fall. For them around the feast of tabernacles which is also when they usually use palm branches uh, but these things are happening now here at passover which is around right now march to april somewhere in there the moon makes it jump around a little bit the moon does that to lots of things um, uh, so easter jumps around passover jumps around uh, but then that time of year in Jerusalem, would there be figs then on the, on the trees? Well, if it's in the fall that they're going to have figs, then no, unless, and this is where the debate goes, okay? Uh, some scholars are like, well, there's a type of fruit that is born on some fig trees in the spring, uh, but you can't eat it. It's bad fruit. And so that's probably what it was. And so Jesus went there and didn't even have bad fruit. Well, that's an interesting thought. I can't say that that's for sure. Uh, you know, how to explain it. Um, it's an interesting thought. Uh, the point is, indeed, he's going to find no good fruit in the temple, and here we are at the cleansing. Okay, uh, this, I'm excited about this part. Uh, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, it is, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. 
and you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared, excuse me, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished, there's that marveling shocked word, was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Again, the story I, I hope you kind of have a feel for already, right? Like, so he, he gets into the city on, on the full, he gets off the full, he goes in, he looks around, he comes back out, you know, goes to sleep, comes in, curses the tree, walking in with huge crowds now. He's just another guy today. Huge crowds, though, coming for Passover. All sorts of stuff. If you've ever been in a city that experiences a Super Bowl, you know what it's like to have the city just blow up into population and then disappear again. Jerusalem did that three times a year. Kind of a cool place to live, probably, if you think about it. So he goes in with these huge crowds, and he looks around again, but he's ready this time. And, and I don't believe, did it mention the whip? Uh, he, he just starts dealing with it. And he does it with his authority, the authority he actually has. So this is not an advocacy for anyone to take up violence in any cause. There's no vigilanteism here. This is Jesus' temple. And he's like, you're not using it well. And so well, what's, what's the thing that is not being used to it? What are they really worshiping? I mean, the symbolism is very clear that the money tables are what they're worshiping. Now, you, you might know or might not know there's layers within the temple complex. And past a certain point, you are not allowed to use anything but the temple shekel. And the reason for that is so that there are no images, no pictures of men who say, I'm a god king on any of the money that's used in the temple. So they set up, to make it easier for everyone who has to use this money that is idolatry, if it is money, usually, uh, they set up these exchange rates where they could get rid of Caesar and put the shekel in their hands and go up. But the, the point being then, what's happening here is the entire complex is turning into a bazaar. It's turning into a market. It is a market. And it's mainly about money changing hands, and then that money that's changing hands is Caesar. And so the courts of the temple that are acting as a market mean more to everybody than the inner court where the Holy of Holies is. In fact, literally, he's come in as a man just recently and stood there. But they're all changing for the donkeys and the pigeons, right? So he, he turns it all upside down, but all for this reason. Here's where I want to draw our connection back to what we heard at the end of chapter 10. Go your faith Go your way, your faith has made you well. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. One of the things about these temple courts is that if you were a Gentile that is not a Jew, you also couldn't go all the way in. You could go in as far as the animals, like when they're being bought and sold. I guess go in as far as the money, that's better to say. You go in as far as the money. And so, whereas Jesus says this house should be built so that everybody is filled with the desire to prayer when they come in, desire to pray. Instead, what is, what is it? They're trying to profiteer on each other, get the best deal. So now if you apply this to the idea of what's the fruit Jesus was looking for from the tree? What's he not find in the temple? What's missing? There's plenty of leaves, a lot of money, a lot of greeting, right? Uh, uh, but, but there's... There's no prayer, and who's not praying especially? I mean, if there is anyone praying, are they Gentiles? And the answer is no. 
It's become completely kept to the self here, right? Completely filled with greed. And so he turns the entire thing over and goes out of the city. And they're, they're so scared of him at this point. I can't imagine, you know, uh, the kind of charisma that this man, Jesus, had. That he can be in a crowd of thousands of people with enemies who are hundreds strong, and they're afraid to do anything about it. Uh, not until it's late and dark and no one's around, because oh, that guy's scared. <laughs> they're scared of him. So then they leave. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, so we're at the next day again, Tuesday, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Well, that's the thing. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Have faith in God? What do you mean? I've just, I thought it was amazing what you did. I thought I did have faith in you, Jesus. Now he's, he's going to teach something next. But let's, before we go into the next part, the fig trees withered from the root. You learn something here. When churches die, it's not because of the fruit on top. There's no fruit on top because there's no root below. The root's the heart of the plant. So sink your roots into the scripture, my people, please, daily, for our sakes. That's the first thing. Second thing, since this fig tree is a picture of Jerusalem and the temple, and there's no fruit in Jerusalem and the temple, what happened to the fig tree is going to happen to Jerusalem and the temple. It's going to get destroyed. And that, that does happen. This is a prophecy of the end of the temple. But now, on to the faith part. Verse 22, bottom of page 847. Jesus said, have faith in God, Peter. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Did he just say that if I ask for healing from cancer and just believe that it'll happen, it'll happen? And the answer is kind of yes. Not, not really kind of. It's kind of all yes. It's like this is exactly what he said. And I don't want to be one of those pastors who comes to a verse that I don't like and says, let's find a way around it. I would like to say that it must line up and stay in concordia, it means harmony, with all the other verses that we believe. And so we know God's not like a salesman. He's not trying to just get us to barter for anything. And we also know that he does plan to kill you someday. Like you're not going to get out of it. Precious is your sight. Or I'm sorry, precious, that too. Precious is your death in the sight of God. And so we know that. So, so is it really just about healing from cancer? And this is, what did he say pray for? While you're praying, if you have anything against your neighbor, pray for his forgiveness. Not to you, that you would forgive him. Pray for a heart that sees and thinks, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Good is better than great. I'm no longer blind. Now I see, and that means I get to see you. 
friends and neighbors who are in need of the same mercy that the God who died with holes in his hands has for me. And together we then are free in his sight. So I suggest to you, uh, with very little time here left, that you take these verses at full value. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, do whatever you want that mountain to do, it's going to obey. I say, don't start with moving mountains. It'll make you a doubter. Start with the things you know God's going to give you answers to. Forgiveness, gentleness, wisdom. Now ask for those things. You're going to get it. Believe you're going to get it. I've been doing this to you for two years now. Ask Jesus for wisdom and believe he's going to give it to you. Just say, here we go. Do it with your heart. Jesus, make me wise for the sake of everyone else. Say it. Jesus, make me wise for the sake of everyone else. What a world that would be. What a world that would be. So start with the things that you know God's going to say yes to because what a world that would be. And then if you're praying for healing from cancer and you die and rise again on the last day, guess what? God didn't say no. He just said, wait a little while. It's always yes in Jesus. It's just a matter of time. And faith and trust is us saying he's in charge of time. He's got it. So by all means, pray for the stars in your hand. Why not? But then also know the answer is always going to be, I'm going to give you wisdom to see why I gave you what you have today so you can know that today you got all that you need because, again, good is better than great. And God already made it good. and You're not so bad as to ruin it. He, he redeemed you better. And here you stand. What's he going to hold back from his son? The real question is, yeah, do you believe it? And I'm going to tell you because I'm your pastor. Yes, you do. In the name of Jesus, amen.